given the time and place that we live in, you know, in 2020, and we have social unrest, we have pandemic happening, we have, you know, sports being canceled, we have major upheaval in a lot of realms of what, uh, you know, of people's lives and what they're going through. And we wanted this series to be a place of just sort of happiness. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle marketing professor at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. I am stoked to welcome back to the pod, Ryan Tutel and Coulter Nuanez of ESPN Radio. We discuss their current edition of the Grizz Greats series, a 25-part celebration of the 1995 University of Montana National Champion football team. The series is fantastic, and I encourage you to check it out. In this conversation, we dig into some of the broader themes and lessons learned in that series, the characters involved, and some of the bigger challenges and contradictions that reside within collegiate athletics. Okay, so let's get into it with Tutel and Nuanez right now. Okay, so we're here today with Ryan Tutel, Coulter Nuanez, back from ESPN Radio. Fellas, thanks for coming back to the podcast. We're thrilled to be back on with you, Justin. Thank you so much. And you guys are cooking up a pre well, you're in the midst of of cooking this awesome project, Grizz Greats. We're kind of catching you midstream in this series. It's a celebration of all things from the 1995 University of Montana championship football team. Yeah, talk a little bit about the series and, and how it came to life. What's the genesis story of this uh, this project? Well, Justin, thanks so much for having us. It's always a pleasure talking to you. We love our conversations with you. But the University of Montana, first and foremost, I'm a guy that my family moved to Missoula in 1993. And so I've been here on and off for most of the last 27 years. But the University of Montana and the athletic department specifically and Missoula in general it's so defined by Grizz football, and it has been for about a generation, maybe a little bit longer than that. But people kind of forget that in the origin point of the Big Sky Conference, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, Big Sky Conference was founded in 1963. Montana, particularly in the 1970s and 1980s, was defined as a basketball school. And our first iteration of the Grizz Greats podcast series featured all the members of the Montana men's basketball coaching tree. Right. So Judd Heathcote, who was the head coach of University of Montana in the 70s, he then went on to Michigan State and had uh, unparalleled success, leading Michigan State to the 1979 National Championship. Magic Johnson, his featured player. And uh, then when he left Montana, that was the first in what became nine different coaching changes, all of which included guys that – both at Montana and then after their time at Montana had unbelievable success. Guys like Mike Montgomery, Stu Morrill, Blaine Taylor, and then all the way up through Wayne Tinkle, Larry Kristoviak, Travis DeKeer. And many of these guys are Hall of Fame coaches or will be someday soon. And so that was the first iteration of Grizz Greats. But then we thought, okay, with no football, there's going to be a lot of hunger for Grizz football. And I just thought in my mind, the question of, when did Montana, the University of Montana, and Missoula as a community sort of switch from being so passionate about basketball, which they still are, to being just over the top, unbelievably passionate about football? And it seemed to me that that rise was in 1993 up through 1995, that group of players that sparked then what became one of the greatest runs in the history of Division I AA and then FCS college football. And to me, the moment in 1995 when Montana won the 1995 Division I AA National Championship, that was this tipping point. It's the origin point for what the dominant run became, but also this pivotal um, peaking of the program at that exact moment as well. And I think it had more than just an influence on the sports dynamic, the athletic department dynamic. This is something that influenced University of Montana, Missoula, Western Montana, the state of Montana, and the Big Sky Conference as a whole. Sure. And Coulter, you mentioned kind of growing up um, as that sort of cultural shift was happening. Ryan, you were in town as well. What was it like as a kid growing up during this uh, during this time? 
it's been so interesting to talk to a lot of the guys that were players because, you know, for example, earlier this week we interviewed Jason Krebo. And when I was a little kid, I used to watch the NFL, the old NFL films with my dad, and Lawrence Taylor was a god to me. But if you would have asked me who's the second greatest linebacker on planet Earth, I would have said Jason Krebo. He, he, was, he was absolutely larger than life to me. When I was eight or nine years old, I thought Jason Krebo was just the man, a hero. And so interviewing those guys now from a different seat is completely fascinating and super, super fun. But I distinctly remember, Justin, 1995, we'd only lived in Missoula for a couple of years. I think I'd been to one Grizz game in my whole life. I was eight years old, and my next-door neighbors, who were big Grizz fans and Missoula natives, they said, hey, there's this football game, and they're playing it on the big screen down at the Wilma. Do you want to go? And I said, oh, absolutely, let's go. I remember watching that game at the Wilma and just being consumed by it. And it's so funny to say because now here we are 25 years later, and that actually probably was the origin point of setting the stage for the rest of my life. I mean, it's it's honestly the thing that made me hooked on college football and made me want to pursue becoming a sports writer as well as a radio broadcaster. So coming full circle on this project for sure. Ryan, what's been kind of your, what was your touch point to this uh, dynasty when it started? Yeah, well, I mean, I I'm moved to, to Missoula in 1992 and, you know, had been in town and was uh, just going into high school at the time, you know, that, that in 95 when they won this whole thing. But it's interesting, my my family, when we got here, we were huge Lady Grizz fans. We went to all the women's basketball games. My sisters played – well, I played basketball, but my sister's much better than I was. And we got into that more than anything else, frankly. But the the party that was – you know, it's Missoula, Montana is – you know, is a big fish in the Montana pond, but obviously Montana is an outpost in the conception of the rest of the country. And so anything that happens on a national scale that ties back to the state of Montana, Montanans are usually very proud of, you know? And so when the Grizzlies won the national championship, the first one in school history, it was on ESPN television. I mean, games were not televised, man, at that time. You know, you couldn't just watch Montana play football if you wanted to. And on ESPN, of all things, I mean, it was the biggest deal in the world. And then for them to win that game and the party that ensued, the excitement, I, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon to be in any city that has a, a championship sport, uh, whether it's professional, whether it's, you know, in college national level, that kind of thing. It is really a, a, a sort of an infectious um enthusiasm that seems to sweep through the community and even people who you know maybe fringe or maybe not even into the sport at all I think can buy into that sort of community level enthusiasm and excitement and and ride that wave be part of that spirit to some extent and I certainly as a high schooler was was a huge part of that even though you know I knew the Grizzly football players and stuff but I don't know I don't recall going to games as a kid I don't have any particular ties to the University of Montana I don't have family members uh, at least at that time, that had gone to the university and so on. So it was more about being a Missoulian and a Montanan and having this happen for for uh, for me personally. So how do you even – so, I mean, the hook for the series makes total sense, right? Silver anniversary of the championship team – like you said, there's there's there there hasn't been a lot of well, there's not college football at least in, in in the Big Sky Conference right now. How do you get your head around putting this thing together? I mean, 25 episodes makes sense, but then you start sort of piecing it together. Like, how do you architect it? Tell tell us about like how you landed certain guests and the order you're going to put guests in, and like how does it all sort of lay out? No clue. Next question. <laughs> Sort of build the uh, one man operation over here, Justin. Uh, actually, the uh, the reality is, is that one thing that we definitely wanted to do is get as sort of cast as wide a net as we possibly could. So, obviously, players and coaches you want to get, but we wanted to get administrators. We got Mick Holine, who was the play by play voice, to kind of open the series. Um, because you know who has a better seat than that guy because he's he's not just calling the game but he's very invested in terms of you know doing research studying and and has you know great stories to tell and so um, some of our best I think interviews and most interesting you know people that we've talked to so far maybe people that are somewhat anonymous and some administrative folks and some, you know, people that were outside of the team per se that I think had great stories and, and sort of a revealing 
part of this that that uh, that folks wouldn't necessarily know about. And so I think that was has been a very cool feature to it and something that we were certainly invested in trying to portray, getting obviously into the heads and minds of the actors, as it were, in this, but also getting stories that that a lot of people are not going to know about. The other thing is, you know, somebody that from a sports writing perspective, which is what I still define myself as and and what I find to be one of the uh, most interesting and rich crafts left that we have uh, in the United States and, and around the world is not, ju- not just sports writing, but the art of journalism, the art of feature writing, and the art of weaving history into uh, things that can become pertinent. The thing that's missing so much right now as the industry, specifically the sports writing industry, has evolved is perspective and putting things into a historical perspective. Everybody wants now, 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 next, 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 and that's all fine and good, but oftentimes what's most important, the way that it fits into the fabric of the history of our culture gets lost because of that instantaneous desire, but also just because of the fervor that exists with fandom. And so often the writers are catering to the people that are consuming But to me, all of the ties that bind are what makes football in Montana so interesting. And when you look at who coached under who, who comes from where, what influences those guys had. For example, we interviewed Eric Simonson, who was an All-American offensive tackle for uh, University of Montana on that team. And he's from Plentywood, Montana. And like he said, Plentywood's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. (laughs) <laughs> and how did that guy make his way to Missoula? Well, then you think back the defensive line coach on that team, Craig Paulson. He's basically the king of Plentywood. He was the he came to the University of Montana in the eighties and set the tone, and and he was a hero to kids in that community. One of them being Eric Simonson, and that's why Eric followed his way uh, to the University of Montana. But then you think about all the different ties from the coaches and and who influenced who, where they came from. That's where we started to kind of weave the web because we obviously wanted to get a lot of the greatest players. And on that 95 team, because they were national champs, I believe there was nine, maybe even 10 All-American caliber players. But there was also pivotal moments, pivotal figures, uh, both within the team and outside the team as well, that we thought would make the podcast series more rich. We got Dave Guffey, who's the sports information director. That's perspective because he can put into perspective as a guy who covered Grizz football for 37 years, just what made that team so special? We talked to Bill Johnson, who is the head of the Alumni Association, uh, as well as the head of admissions at, at the university for many, many years. And just we, we addressed the angle of how did this influence enrollment and the student population in general and just the visibility of the University of Montana around the state and around the region. So we wanted to get multiple angles because I think this was – not just an athletic phenomenon, but a cultural phenomenon that definitely had an influence on the university across the board. Makes a ton of sense. And you're telling the story through this series of interviews with with all kinds of characters, like you said, some of the best performers on the team, but also some of the unknown folks as well. So as you're doing that, and I know we're, we're catching your, your midstream, so a lot of these uh, you know, folks got to tune in. If you haven't been tuning in, catch up. And if some folks, if you've been listening all along, got to kind of wait for the uh, for the great stuff toward the end, I'm sure. But what are some of the themes that um, you're trying to draw out that sort of arc throughout the whole series? When you have a center point, like specifically the game, right, the, the national championship game and at Marshall, that is, you know, that is the center point that all of these run through. But it is, I mean, it is a web, right? Because each guy comes at it from a different angle and leaves at a different angle. Some guys go through that game and head to the NFL. Some guys go through that game and head for the ranch. Some guys go right. through that game and head for the financial, you know, industry in Baltimore, Maryland. You know, so so I think that what is interesting is the the personal side of this. And a lot of this we're finding out as we're doing the interviews. I mean, to bring back Eric Simonson. He had his firstborn child 
in between the third and fourth week of the 95 season. So he's a brand new father with this, with this little baby in the middle of his senior season, which becomes a national championship run. Well, that's, that's remarkable stuff. And that you don't find out until you kind of ask about it. And I think that's the stuff that I think is really interesting. And so there's, there's the common theme of the season and the game and what that was, that experience was like, but then every individual has their both unique perspective of that but also the experience of what transpired leading up to and after that and let's talk about the coach don reed um he plays such a pivotal role in 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 not only in, in the game itself but this whole history that you're drawing out and in the lives of all these people such a, a, a huge presence um you know coach reed's gotta be pretty old at this point. Um, not sure if he fits into the series or not, but as far as, you know, if, if you can talk to him, but how does he, how does his sort of presence um, arc throughout the series? It's such an interesting question because he, he is such a, he's such a mysterious figure in this on one hand, because Don Reed had coached college football as a head coach for more than 20 years by the time the 1995 season rolled around and 1995 was unquestionably the greatest season of his head coaching career. And then the next spring, he sort of abruptly retired and he never returned to the game in in any form or fashion. I know his son, Bruce climbed the ranks in college football and then coached in the NFL. Bruce was on that staff coaching special teams for the Grizz. I know Don followed him around quite a bit in his later years, but Don Reed to win like he did and then abruptly retire and really never leave any, any doubt as to who was the greatest coach in Montana history, because there was so often people that achieve great things, their reputation gets, I don't know what to, how to, what, what the right word is, but if you stay too long, oftentimes you don't have that epic moment. Michael Jordan is such a key uh, example of that. He hits the game-winning shot to win the finals. And I know he came back later on and played a couple seasons with the Wizards or whatever, but we remember him for that pivotal last moment. And Don Reed has that same element to him. And the fact that he stayed out of the limelight, I think it's sort of helped his legend grow. And it's been, at the same time, fascinating and sort of sad because we've talked to so many guys that have been a part of this and we ask every single one of them about coach Reed and they all talk about this ultimate influence he had on their lives. And none of them have talked to him in quite some time. And I know he is still alive. He still lives in Oregon, but we've been trying to track him down. And I think it's kind of both sides, right? We would love to have him be a part of this because I think that he is the architect of this entire thing. And definitely one of the pivotal figures not only for the 95 season, but for the University of Montana football program. But at the same time, the fact that he uh, isn't a part of it and only the, the opinions of others about him, it almost makes his reputation resonate even greater, if that makes sense. Yeah, and some of the, you know, I was, I was watching some old footage to kind of prepare for this conversation. And, and the way the players describe him is it's kind of different. You know, there's, there's players that describe coaches as, Oh yeah, this is the greatest coach I ever played for or whatever. But a lot of the, you know, the quotes are along the lines of Don Reed is the greatest person I've ever met. And, you know, to have such a, an enormous presence architect, such an amazing series of performances up to and including the championship game. And then to just disappear. I mean, it's kind of, yeah, I think mysterious and and uh, yeah, a little baffling is kind of it's it's hard for us as sort of observers to just understand why these sorts of things happen. But you know, I, one thing I think about too is for anybody who's gone through a college experience, there's a lot of people who are tremendously influential in your life during mm-hmm. your college years and who you grow tremendously close to, whether it's peers, whether it's faculty, whether it's coaches, whatever the case may be. But then, you know, college is built sort of to deliver you out into the wider world and it and it's 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 shotgun, it's buckshot, right? I mean, everybody just flies out of there and goes their separate ways and hopefully and certainly you do keep in contact with many people. Well, there's a whole lot of people you don't, you know. That doesn't in my mind sort of decrease or change anything about how significant coach Reed was and like you said, I mean, to a player 
to a person. I mean, whether it was whether it was other faculty or you know staff, whether it was administrative folks, other coaches, other players, everybody loves loves, and I use that in the present tense. Don mm-hmm. Reed, uh, he he was this this grandfatherly figure and warm and you know kind and I you know uh, caring and also really motivating. I mean, he had a fiery streak to him too as a coach, which I think you do need uh, to play the sort of physical game that football is. And so it seemed to me, you know, in in the secondhand sort of way that you get to know him, that he kind of hit at every level. And you asked about themes, Justin. I think that one of the other things that's fascinating to me is when you analyze what has been the University of Montana football program for the last 25 years, it's been one that has no question among the highest expectations, both internally and externally, of any college football program in the United States of America, period. A lot of people would say the most unrealistic expectations (laughs) of any college football program period i mean there's a lot of guys that have crossed paths with grizz football and or you know have roots in missoula dave dickinson for example the quarterback of this team which i know we'll get into but he said many times despite his phenomenally successful career coaching in the canadian football league he's not interested in taking the montana job it's way too much pressure it's the most pressure-packed job on the planet jim McElwain from missoula who's now the head coach at central michigan he said that's the worst job in the country you lose one game and people want to fire you and so you wonder though from the Don Reed perspective if he knew because when Don Reed was the head coach the Grizz were sort of David trying to topple Goliath and then when they did and they slay the giant and they win the 1995 national championship all of a sudden they become Goliath when you look at his the guy who came after him Mick Dennehy Mick Dennehy had good success went to the national championship game in his first year in 96 went to the playoffs each of the next three years, and a lot of people were largely disappointed in the fact that the Grizz couldn't get back to that truly nationally elite level uh, through the last part of the late 90s. Joe Glenn, he wins a national championship. He goes 39-6 and during his time in Montana, but still people wanted more. And that's what we've seen over and over and over again, you know, first sale signs in coaches' yards when they lose a game. And you wonder if Don Reed just knew once he reached that mountaintop, that getting back to that mountaintop would be so difficult, and maybe that's why he walked away. Yeah, it's hard to know. It's hard to know, too, how those unrealistic expectations form. I mean, is there something about Montana that, you know, you win this one national championship, you kind of break through, as you framed it, as like a David and Goliath. The moment you become this Goliath, people just expect it over and over again. I think that's probably true in in, in multiple places. Um, But have you... yeah, talk about sort of Montana sports culture and how you've sort of observed some of these dynamics over the years, the expectations, the pressure, and the characteristics of the folks that are able to rise to that pressure. Well, the state of Montana itself has always produced tremendous football talent. I think that there's a, several different elements that go into that. I think there's an inherent toughness that comes with being a Montanan, mm-hmm. and that goes hand-in-hand hand with football. I think a lot of guys – They grow up in Montana. They come from working-class backgrounds. Their dads work on the farm or on the ranch or in the mine. There's not a lot of white-collar guys. There's a lot of blue-collar guys, especially when you're talking about some of the most rural parts of the state of Montana. I think that caters perfectly to college football. I also think it's a very unique dynamic in the state. You have two college football programs with such unbelievably passionate fan bases, and they are the only shows in town but they're treated like the pro football teams, essentially. And so then you have kids from around the state. There's very few kids that grow up in the state of Montana, no matter what your baseline talent is or your opportunity or the affluency of your family or anything, that dream about being anything but Grizzlies and Bobcats. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Joe Anderson. I am the CEO of Reflex Protect, and you're listening to A New Angle. And when you when you look at what the state was up until the 90s when Don Reed started breaking through, in the 70s, 60s and 70s, Jim Sweeney, Sonny Holland, Sonny Lubick, three godfathers from Butte, they were running the Montana State program in succession and they were dominating the rivalry, and they were dominating the Big Sky Conference. 
so much of that was getting all the guys out of Butte and just the the way that those that, that just catered to um, the toughness that Coach Holland and Coach Lubick's teams wanted to play with. But then you see this diametric shift, the building of Washington Grizzly Stadium in 1985 and the hiring of Don Reed right before the 1986 season, and that helped the pendulum swing. But to answer your question, Justin, then when you see this ultimate breakthrough, this 1995 National Championship, the, the thing that that did for Montana more than anything else was make the Grizz so in vogue, make the Grizz the popular team amongst the young people in Montana. And for then a, a, a bulk of time, because Montana had beat Montana State up until 1995 10 times in a row and eventually up to 16 times in a row, the streak plus the 95 National Championship plus then you pile on another National Championship in 2001, and now all of a sudden this great group of talent that exists in the state of Montana the vast, vast, vast majority of those kids are going to the University of Montana, and now all of a sudden the rich keep getting richer because you're cleaning up on in-state recruiting. And I'd like to add to that too because I, I don't think it was – I think the moment was the beginning, the, nas- the national championship in 95, but it wasn't just immediate after that. It was sustained success over time that created the expectations. But when you talk about like the culture of sports in Montana – Justin, I do think it's a pretty interesting phenomenon, and I don't think it's just in in the state of Montana. I think it's at large, especially in college sports. One thing I've thought a lot about is why is there the fervor for college athletics that there is and the money for it and everything else? And and what seems pretty clear to me is that people have – People are bound up in their personal identities oftentimes with the schools that they went to. If you went to a college and you had a great experience at that university, and a lot of that was maybe being just a fan, just a, you know, a student in the student section, you know, having fun at these games. And then also just in general, you're wearing the colors, you're wearing the school name on your sweatshirts and stuff like that. All of a sudden you, you find yourself, adding that to who you are. It's not just, yeah, this is where I went to school. It's I'm a Grizzly, right? And and that is very powerful. And I think that people, especially when all of a sudden your team and your school starts to be really good at something, does something that you take great pride in of having, again, this national relevance for a state that often doesn't probably get a whole lot of national exposure, then that, that begins to breed uh, a level of enthusiasm that is is very very high and and frankly is probably out of whack with reality and again I don't think that's unique to Montana I think that's a lot of places that you go but I think that often is the case as to why that happens anything about the origin point of some not some a great many of these players too right I mean in a city like Great Falls up until the mid-1990s you have a bunch of people that are fans of both the Grizz and the Bobcats. And I know that still remains true. There's a huge Bobcat contingent in Great Falls. But when you have this iconic player like Dave Dickinson, who's from Great Falls, now anybody that was maybe a fringe fan or, I mean, the bandwagon just gets a whole bunch of new members when one of your favorite sons is the quarterback on the national championship team, right? Kid from Helena, Montana, Andy Larson, drills the game-winning field goal. Well, now everybody in Helena wants to brag about the kid from Helena who hit the game-winning field goal. And then you extrapolate that into towns like Haver and Dillon and Plentywood and Glasgow, Scobie, Sydney, Glendive, all these small communities. And all of a sudden now, I mean, I remember writing a story uh, on the other side of the rivalry about the Sea Wing Twins. They were kids that grew up in Seiko, Montana. Seiko, Montana is population maybe 175. I mean, you're talking tiny. And they told me a story when they walked on to the Bobcats, they didn't know a single Bobcat fan in Seiko. And by the time they were seniors, they said with confidence, all 175 people in Seiko, they like the Bobcats. So it's interesting the way that it's kind of the you're winning for your community and you're bringing bragging rights to your hometown. And then that helps fester uh, this passion and a lot of times insanity for college football. And you're doing it, at least back then, in a totally different media environment. I mean, we don't have like the players' Twitter feeds to follow, for example. And so you know, and particularly the 1995 championship game, the travel across the country to West Virginia, the sort of middle of nowhere. Um, you know, and it's hard to get, like, like Ryan said earlier, it's hard to get the TV feed. It's hard to get this information out to rural Montana. What are your thoughts on sort of that, like informational age in which this, uh, this season and the starting point for the dynasty sort of occurred? Well, 
pragmatically, that's the reason we started this whole series with with Mick Holine, because the radio was the thing that was the window for the the whole state. Unless you were in the stadium, you were listening to the radio to get your mm-hmm. games, and so he, you know, his voice. I think really breaks through for people who were, you know, into it and paying attention at that time. Uh, certainly the evolution or the devolution of media, depending on how you want to think about it, uh, and, and social medias and technology uh, has drastically shifted and in some cases uh, improved, in some cases improved, and in some cases not improved. Um, the the way in which exposure happens and what the standard is for both players, fans, etc. cetera. Uh, but, but to go back to 1995, I think it's, it's easy to think back into the past and think about, you know, the, the simpler time and low, you know, how, how crazy and complex things have gotten in some cases, that's just sort of, um, how do I want to say it? That's not real. But in this sure. case, I think it's very real, right? In this case, it was such a much simpler time and so 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 much more straightforward. You had your newspaper, beat writers, uh, you know, maybe your hit on the news, you know, in the evenings on the local news, and you had your radio, and that was it, and that was all. And now, you know, everybody is sort of their own biggest media, you know, uh, uh, outlet in a lot of ways. And that that is, you know, in some cases a good thing, and in some cases maybe not. So in many ways, this series is is a giant celebration of this 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 the season and and, and the, the the run that ensued. Um, we're midway through, but are there any villains in the story? Are there any tragic heroes in the story? Like, what it paints some of the ups and downs here? Are there any any of those characters that we're we've yet to find or that you've explored? Well, I think that. Everybody that we've been talking to was by and large united and on the same side, but they certainly had villains. And I think that people that are new to following the Big Sky Conference, they think of Montana and their ultimate and pivotal and singular rival as Montana State. Mm -hmm. And Eastern Washington likes to think of themselves as the Grizz secondary rival, and they certainly consider Montana their number one rival. And I think some Montana fans certainly consider Eastern a secondary rivalry. But at that moment in time, Eastern Washington was was almost a non-factor in the Big Sky Conference. They were in a transition from Dick Zorn to Mike Kramer. They were rebuilding the thing. They did have a breakthrough in 97 where they made it to the Final Four of the FCS playoffs. But at that moment, Eastern Washington was far down the totem pole. People that will remember the Big Sky Conference in its original form remember that the Big Sky Conference had powerhouse members like Idaho, Boise State, Nevada. And those teams had all either left the league or were in the process of leaving the league around this time. And so that's one of the reasons why we interviewed Ron Lockery, who was the head of media relations at the Big Sky Conference, because we wanted to get his perspective. At that moment in time, he's talking about 1994, Boise State loses to Jim Trestle's Youngstown State team in the Division I AA championship game. But Boise State at that moment was this this sleeping giant who was about to start to explode. And they had made the announcement that they were leaving the league the following year in 1995. Idaho had already started the transition, and they were out of the league by the end of the 95 season as well. And Nevada, they had left the year before. And so I think in the league, people were really apprehensive. Who is going to be the flag bearer? Montana State had stumbled, and they had no longer – had the reputation that they once had in the 70s when they were a national championship program. And with these three other teams leaving, where was the big sky going to turn? And so Montana, I think they needed to affirm their place as this new flagship school in the league. And that element is a completely different element of this that I found totally fascinating as well. But the villains in that point in time, I think, were the Idaho schools. And you had the pivotal win that the Grizz had in 95 over Boise State when they beat a team that had been the national runner-up the year before and the confidence that that gave that team and the way it sort of ignited them. But then you also had the loss to Idaho, which was their last loss and the last loss they had to Idaho in the big sky. So that was a rivalry game loss, but the Grizz didn't lose after that moment. So I think both of those games, those were sort of the villains to the Grizz in this specific season. And each one of those games, the win over Boise State and the loss to Idaho, had profound influences on the way that the rest of the season played out. 
The other thing to me, if you're looking for an actual like human villain in this, I don't think you're going to find one because I think that particularly with Don Reed at the head of it and the the relationship that the players uh, had to him. And then he created a, a, a great unifying group inside where it, it it's clear like in this that these players really, really cared about each other and, and continue to and, and uh, are were and are dear and good friends, you know, even even through, you know, over the course of, of two and a half decades. One thing, though, that I, w- I wouldn't call it villainous, but I might consider it antagonistic is what happened with the University of Montana football 15 years after this championship. And it doesn't really get referenced, but you get this apophatic look of what happened from like 2010 to, you know, call it 20, you know, 2017, 2015, 2018, whatever, where the foundational work that was done in terms of creating this monster program and dominant program and seven national championship appearances in 14 years all fell apart in in you know very ugly and very public ways and that having happened you know there's a lot of skipping ahead to the present that's about you know yeah I think we're back on track I think things are looking good again we're excited about Montana football but there is this sort of backdrop that is is in the shadows of you know that it didn't carry all the way through in this linear fashion to this present day even though the Grizzly program from a football standpoint has been you know, pretty dominant, you know, regardless of circumstance and has been very envied at the FCS level, regardless of circumstance. I think that that is there in, in this way in, in several of these interviews. Yeah. And that's a, that's a big issue in terms of, you know, these, these broader themes in our society, Coulter referenced them earlier in Ryan, you as well about how the, the role that athletics play in our, in our higher education world. It's, it's, it's a, issue that I'm conflicted about. I mean, as you both know, I was a college athlete. It was a huge part of my life, but I, I do wonder about the relationship between these teams and these universities and what it, what exactly our mission is. Um, as journalists, how do you kind of grapple with that? Um, you 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 framed this series as a celebration um, do you set that stuff aside and say it's not time for us to inter- interrogate those broader themes, or do you have to kind of wrestle with them as you as you kind of draw out this series? Well, you know, within the context of this, um, look, when we decided to do this series, one of the conversations that we had ahead of time was given the time and place that we live in, you know, in 2020, and we have social unrest, we have pandemic happening, we have, you know, sports being canceled, we have major upheaval in a lot of realms of what, uh, you know, of people's lives and what they're going through. And we wanted this series to be a place of just sort of happiness, you know, of a, a place yeah. of, of memory and whether we're, you know, excising some of the nitty gritty in order to get to that, maybe I think that within the context of the series itself, it probably isn't the place for it. But as as a journalist, as a member of the media, uh, it's not something that I, I wrestle with. It's something that I have certainty about the relationship between fans and just people and their sports is an unhealthy one. And I say that first and foremost for me. I mean, I've put off things that I should not have put off for the sake of sports, you know, and I have been probably unhealthily uh, emotionally involved in the teams that I care about and I love. Now, there is also, you know, the negation of that isn't necessarily a good thing. I'm not sitting here advocating for, well, you know, if we just got rid of sports, we could focus on our work or something like that. That also is crazy to me. I think sports bring a huge dynamic of of positivity of excitement of joy of exactly what we're doing this whole series about two people's lives and are hugely influential for the good uh but also uh as with anything man like if you if you decide that it is what you're going to be about to the you know to the destruction or to the elimination or to the uh, negation of everything else, then, then it's completely out of balance and it's, it's, it's possible and easy actually to do it as an individual. And it certainly can and does happen societally, both at micro and macrocosmic levels. And that stuff, you know, I'm happy to, 
sit here and not happy, but I, I do sit here and say with ease that that is not good. That's that's stuff that you have to be uh, aware of, and and I think take note of and stand against when it when it is you know unhealthy in these variety of ways. And that I don't know that that's unique to sports, but I think that it's easy to not pay attention to because sports are so fun, right? People get such enjoyment out of them that all of a sudden you sit here and you go, uh, uh, you know, well, what are we really doing here? But I mean, look, alcohol is fun and it's also a good way to get into a lot of trouble either in an individual instance or over the course of time if you're not, if you don't pay attention to it. So I, I think that there's, you know, an, an analog to be drawn in, in many of the things that we take enjoyment in. Well, now you're basically just triggering uh, a renewal of my existential crisis that I've been going through for the last. <laughs> I was. It's taken us forty minutes months. to get there, Coulter, but that's been the objective. For yeah, the yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't tell you how much I've thought about this. Uh, how much I've thought about. To me, the two things that the pandemic has taught me specifically is one just how brutally mean and selfish and quite frankly, uneducated and dumb people are. And two, how exploitative, greed-driven, money-hungry, and largely immoral college sports are. And I've been really battling with this, you know, my role in it. And I have always tried to cast myself as someone that wants to do this for the archiving of history for our communities. Nothing more, nothing less. Uh, the exploitation and glorification of athletes can sometimes become nauseating. I think it takes perspective to put uh, these young men into the spot that they deserve in terms of what they mean to uh, the state at large, but also uh, not deify them because at the end of the day, they are still humans. I think that the two takeaways I have from this specific series, though, is one, how much more fun it used to be to be a Grizz fan. Because I think that when you are the plucky underdog that's trying to reach the mountaintop, the elation that occurs when you actually get there, it can be shared so communally and can be such a transcendent and amazing moment. Since then, the, the expectations have become so crazy that, I mean, for example, when Bobby Houck was at Montana, his first tenure, when he first left to go to UNLV, the narrative and storyline was almost exclusively Bobby couldn't win the big game. The guy went 80 and 17. He, 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 he made, he, he beat down people in the conference to a level that it didn't even seem as if they were big games because he would beat the the teams that were supposed to be big games by 17 and 21 points. And so uh, I think that that narrative was completely flawed. And the fact that people, instead of saying, man, this guy led us to three national championship games in seven years, the other side of the narrative came around. They went to three national championship games in seven years, and they blew it every time. And I think that's, by and large, a trend in sports as well. But you see it on full display with Grizz people. But the other thing I think that I've really enjoyed about this series is the fact that every guy that we've talked to that was a player on this team, they're so successful in their lives. And I think that, mm. Justin, you, you understand this. I think if you have perspective as a college athlete – you realize the values that it teaches you. And it's not necessarily about the glory that you achieve within your sport. It's the discipline, the teamwork, the camaraderie, you know, all of those things, the sacrifice that can carry you in your life. But I, th I thought that one of the most interesting portions of this podcast series so far, we talked to Andy Larson, who's the guy who made the kick to win the game. Right. And I asked him, I said, Andy, on one hand, experiencing what is no question one of the pivotal moments of your entire life when you're 21 years old is an unbelievable accomplishment and something that you should be very proud of. But also, how do you have perspective here 25 years later and not let it be the defining moment in your life? And he talked extensively about that exact dynamic, how, how he's thought about that. And I think that's the whole thing is college athletics is so valuable if you can reach introspection and realize the values it builds for you what you have accomplished but not hold on to that being the greatest accomplishments of your life because they happen when you're so young and i thought andy gave great perspective talking about the ways that it has propelled him forward and how proud he is of that moment but how he's also not let it define him even if it is one of the defining things that the public remembers about him 
I think that's so well put and, and so important to think about. I mean, the distribution of outcomes across the players on this team, on, on any college team, are not equal. I mean, for, for some folks, it is, uh, you know, a point on an upward trajectory. Uh, for some point, for some folks, it's the high point of their entire life. And for other folks, it's just sort of a mixed bag. And so it's hard to really know where that sits. I will say that one thing, and I want to pivot the conversation in our, in our closing time here, and maybe this is just sort of the business school professor in me. I think one of the most interesting tidbits has come out in your, your promotional spots for your sponsors. And I should say that First Security Bank and Blackfoot are your uh, presenting sponsors. They're also the presenting sponsors of, of this podcast. Um, there's a vignette about First Security Bank and the role that First Security played in securing the finances for uh, some of these home games and, and the risks associated with, with taking on um, these home playoff games. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, it's in one of the little ads that you, you talk about, but it's a really interesting story. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's sort of in, in, in the context of what we're talking about 1995, it was not just for granted that Montana, if they were in the playoffs, was going to get a home game. There's a bidding process where – uh, basically, the NCAA requires a surety that they're going to be financial, financially compensated for their expenses of putting on the game, and they do the travel and all that kind of thing. So the two schools that are involved you know, basically put a bid together, and it's not about who had the better regular season or the better record or whatever. And, uh, and you know, Bill Boucher, president of First Security Bank, along with several mm-hmm. other uh, you know, business uh, folks in Missoula at that time, basically said, you can – if, if you fall short in terms of attendance to the athletic department, we will guarantee the money. You know, we will come up with it. We'll write you a check for whatever the gap is so that the university then was not on the hook for that amount of money if there was a shortfall. Now, as it turns out, there wasn't a shortfall, but it's interesting because you didn't know that. it was taken. It's taken for granted now bet. that yeah. you're just going to get the game and you're going to make a bunch of money, uh, you know, both for the city and for the university. But at that time, it wasn't the case. And that is a major, it's a major economic turning point in the history of, of Missoula uh, and as a result of that 95 team and kind of what they did. And it's such a double-edged sword, as everything now it seems is, because that was in 1993 when that was occurring, uh, because that was the first of what became 17 straight playoff appearances for the University of Montana. And I think that it's human nature to become spoiled and take things for granted. But once upon a time, not that long ago, it was no guarantee that the Grizz were going to be in the playoffs. It was no guarantee the Grizz were going to get multiple home games. I remember seeing it shift in the mid-2000s to late-2000s where Montana fans almost knew that Montana was going to advance. They were not only going to get a home game or two or three, but they were going to advance. And so that first home game oftentimes, which oftentimes fell around Thanksgiving, would be the lowest-attended game of the year. You'd have the Bobcat game the week before. Everybody would be out in full force. And then you'd have seven or 8,000 empty seats in the stands partially because of the holiday, but also partially because people just assumed that the Grizz were going to win. And I remember when they lost to Wofford in the first round of the playoffs in 2007, just the pandemonium. I, you know, I didn't go to that game because I was just thought it was a shoe in We were number one team in the country. You know, we were going to be in the quarterfinals easily. And so, you know, the spoiled nature of people, it, it, it uh, is revealed in, in just the fact that it became so consistently great. But the other part that is a double-edged sword, which is this is just basic economics, is that Mm -hmm. starting in 1993, when that was such an economic boon and a a thing that put an influx of money into the Missoula community during a time where maybe most business owners, most downtown bar owners, they weren't expected to to make that much money, you know, around the holidays and when it's getting colder. But all of a sudden now, it becomes this part of the economic um, environment in downtown Missoula. And then when all of a sudden you have 17 straight playoff berths, and then all of a sudden... You're in the playoffs almost every single year for 27 years. Now, the university 
itself, their athletic department. They're writing into the budget because you just have to assume that's the expectation. Your sixth regular season home games and then at least one or two playoff games. But then all of a sudden you have all the downtown bars and they're saying, okay, okay, Cat Grizz is going to be here this week. We know we're going to get this much revenue. But also we're going to plan for uh, how are we this year? Okay, Grizz are pretty good. We're going to plan for one, maybe two, maybe even three home playoff games. And so then when it doesn't happen, though, that's devastating economically because you expected it right, wrong, or indifferent. And I think that's the biggest concern for what we're going through right now. I know so many guys that are downtown business owners that are thinking, how on earth am I going to make up the revenue? The Bobcat Grizz game is supposed to be in Missoula this year. There's a lot of people that say, you know, that's going to make up 50% of your fourth quarter revenue just that weekend. How do you make that up without that game? I'm not sure. And so it's not as if it's a bad thing. It's a great thing to have that economic influx into the city of Missoula like we had for so long. But then when it doesn't happen, it can bring you to this point where you're bordering on catastrophe because of the economic collapse. The expectations game in full effect and the risk and folly associated with those expectations. That's well put, Coulter. And Unfortunately, you've been playing that expectations game, the two of you, because my expectations, and I'm sure the expectations of our listeners are very high for the remaining episodes in your series. <laughs> I wonder, as this thing gains momentum, like, are you going to be able to keep it to 25? Are you a hard stop at 25? Or, or are, are people going to start saying, as they hear others in it and, and hear others' voices, are they going to say, why aren't they interviewing me? I want to get in. I want to get in. How are you going to deal with that problem? I would say uh, 25 is is a... Uh, What's like the softest metal? It's like a relative. It, it, it's like, magnesium. Yeah, magnesium. Oh, no. It's magnesium. It's a, it's a hard number until it's not until it gets too hot sure. and then we got to move on past it a little bit. Uh, we have, you know, several figures. We've we've you know we've interviewed Dave Dickinson. He was great. He'll be released later on. And so mm-hmm. there's some very you know there's there's some notable individuals that are just no doubters that you know that you want to have for a series like this but like Coulter and I uh, it was said earlier there's uh, there's been some of the most fun and interesting conversations maybe have come from the what you might expect to be the most unlikely sources and so um that is the that is part of this that I have found really really fun and enjoyable and you know clearly word is getting out about it I I, I think that Justin um if I can say being Montana famous is just about the right kind of famous to be because these guys did something that will live forever and has lived forever in the minds and the hearts of, of Grizz nation of people who follow the university of Montana and so on, but also on the landscape of, you know, the world, it's still a relatively anonymous event. And so you get to have these moments where, you know, you get to experience this sort of adulation and, and so the, the, the enjoyment that comes from being known or having done something that people cared about. But also it doesn't become exhausting over time where people are hitting you up every day. And one thing that's been sure. enjoyable to me is it feels like these the, the, everybody involved, the coaches, the players have really enjoyed talking about this stuff because it has been a while and even for them it's a walk down memory lane and it's not something you know like you know winning a Super Bowl or whatever that you would probably be inundated with you know every week for the rest of your life and so I think that is something that has been been uh, been fun well it's an awesome story and it's been so fun uh, listening to the two of you draw it out and, and the various voices that you've had in the series congratulations keep up the great work and it's also fun to just see the two of you um, play around with this longer form format. I, you know, I know Coulter that you know Skyline that that's that's something regular for you. But in this in this radio format, it's been really fun to listen to. So keep up the good work, and thanks for stopping by the pod to tell us about it. Well, Justin, we appreciate it and, and, and appreciate you and what you do here in this spot. I think this is a really valuable space and we, uh, we take seriously our time uh, with you on it and appreciate you uh, lending us sort of that, that voice here and, and the other voices, the many wonderful voices you've had on this podcast uh, over what? I mean, like a year and a half now, man. So congratulations to you and, uh, and, and we appreciate the work you do. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot with support from the University of Montana College of Business and Consolidated Electrical Distributors. AJ Williams is our producer. Jeff Ament, John Wicks, and VTO made our music. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, 
please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. If you like what you heard, tell your friends about us. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.